Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad that we could have this time together. We are continuing our look at the Ten Commandments. Today's lesson deals with the Seventh Commandment, and I've titled it Dealing with Illicit Desires. And this comes from the Seventh Commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Before we get into our lesson, let's open with the word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us, for the opportunity we have to come together to study your word, and we ask that you would uh, speak to our hearts today as we look at this section of Scripture and as we learn whatever it is that you would have us to learn in your name. Amen. Well, as we've said, today we're looking at the Seventh Commandment, Do Not Commit Adultery. The focus of our lesson is the adulterous heart. It's a heart that's not satisfied with what God has provided. Instead, it seeks out what is forbidden. And the ultimate result is that the adulterous spirit destroys us. Today's lesson deals with marriage. And marriage is one of the earliest institutions that was set up by God. Uh, as soon as you had one man and one woman, Adam and Eve, you find God setting up marriage, Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Marriage was intended to be something unique, to allow two people to join together in such an intimate relationship that the two actually become one. They form a spiritual union. But today's lesson warns us in our sinful fallen state, it's easy for us to destroy this blessing that God has given us. Through adultery, we can break the marriage vows and break up this spiritual union. Scripture wants us to see, however, the root of adultery is not physical. The root cause of adultery is the idolatrous, uh, the, the heart that wants what it should not have. It's rejecting what God has given us and desiring something else. And the results can be catastrophic. In uh, the middle 90s, Aaron Ralston made national headlines. He was rescued by two hikers after he had been lost and trapped in the desert canyons of Utah for six days. The story he told his rescuers was amazing and it captivated the country. He had been climbing in one of those canyons when an 800-pound boulder fell and trapped his right arm against a rock. Now, he had a liter of water, two burritos, a couple of pieces of chocolate, and that was it. He did not have a cell phone. And, to make matters worse, he had not told anyone where he was going. And so he spends the first two days desperately trying to free himself from underneath this rock. Then he had to face the horrifying reality. If he was going to survive, he was going to have to cut off his arm. Now, over the next three days, he tries to come up with some other option. He goes back and forth. But finally, on the sixth day, he does it. He actually uses a knife that he has with him to cut through his arm and to free himself. He made the choice that it was better to live with one arm than to die in the desert with both arms. 
Now, it's hard for me to imagine being in such a desperate situation, uh, a situation where I would cut off my own arm. What is fascinating is Jesus used a, a situation exactly like this uh, over 2,000 years ago to warn us about the adulterous heart. Matthew 5, 27 through verse 30, Jesus is speaking and he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus puts it very plainly here. There can be no mistake. Now, a man would have to be desperate to cut off his hand to pull out an eye. But we need to understand this adulterous spirit within us, this spirit that lusts after what it shouldn't have, it is so dangerous that we need to take desperate measures to get rid of it, to do whatever it takes, because if we will not do this, we run the risk of losing our whole body and life to hell. So when we look at the seventh commandment from Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. We see a, a simple, short command, but one that's extremely important. Now, it's important not only to allow us to experience the blessing of marriage, but if we allow the adulterous spirit to rule our lives, we bring destruction upon us. Now, as we look at the seventh commandment, it's important for us to understand Adultery is not primarily about forbidden sexual acts. The Old Testament law contained many regulations about sex, what was allowed and what was not. But adultery was specifically about the marriage covenant. The sin of adultery can only take place within the marriage. A, a single person can commit many other types of sexual sins, but a single person cannot commit adultery. Adultery is the breaking of the marriage vows, the breaking of this union that God has established. Now, in today's society, we have this idea that uh, adultery is primarily about sex. We feel that people cheat on their partners because they just aren't being satisfied sexually. But Dr. Willard Harley points out, many adulterers actually have an active sex life with their partners, but they share little or no intimacy. And it's this lack of intimacy that leads one partner to feeling their needs are not being met. And so they set out to satisfy those needs, desires in illegitimate unions. In our lesson today, we want to look at adultery as a symptom of a much more widespread universal problem. We want to look at spiritual unfaithfulness or spiritual adultery. Once a man and a woman enter the union of marriage, other unions become off-limits, and to engage in these forbidden unions constitutes adultery. In the same way, when a person comes to Christ, they enter into a spiritual union with Christ, and this means other types of union are off-limits, and when we engage in these, we commit spiritual adultery. James describes this exact situation 
in James 4, 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, James clearly identifies the problem. He doesn't describe these believers as wicked, sinful. He tells them, you are adulterous. These were supposed to be believers. They were to be joined with Christ, but instead, they had entered into a union with the world. James makes it plain that these cannot coexist. You can choose to be a friend of the world, or you can choose to belong to Christ, but you cannot do both. And when we betray our marriage to Christ and become involved with the world, we become trapped in destructive, sinful lifestyles. James goes on to write, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. James 4, 1 and 2. Today, we want to take a close look at marriage and adultery so we can understand God's plan, His plan to have us for His very own, to have us to where we can truly love Him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. So, I want to begin by looking at God's design for marriage. What did God mean for marriage to be? And what does this teach us about God's intentions for us in our relationship with Him. As we said earlier, marriage was designed or instituted by God from the very beginning. God creates the first man, Adam, but there's no suitable partner for him. So God puts Adam to sleep and uses one of his ribs to create Eve. And then we find Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Now, Scripture tells us over and over about the blessings of marriage. Uh, Proverbs 18.22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Hebrews 13.4, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Uh, Proverbs 31.10, An excellent wife who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. It's interesting that the Jewish law saw marriage as so important that any man who was newly married was excused from many public obligations for a year following the marriage. He was given time to, to start his new life with his bride. Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home for one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. So, we can see the Old Testament considers marriage to be a valuable gift from God. It's from God our Creator to us, and it's powerful, it's effective, and it's partly this way because of a process we call synergy. Synergy is the cooperation of two agents to produce a combined effort that's greater than the sum of their separate parts. In other words, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. For example, you can have two businesses that merge together, and together they create a new business that's much stronger than either one would be alone. In nature, we can see the example of the lichen. 
Lichens are found all over the world in every type of environment, even some of the world's most extreme environments. But a lichen is not actually one organism, but two. It's a partnership, a symbiosis of an algae and a fungus. The algae provides food through photosynthesis. The fungus provides a structure for adhesion. It allows a lichen to grow on almost any kind of surface. So, what neither organism could be on its own, when they come together, they produce something unique that grows and prospers. Somehow, when two people come together in marriage, they create something that's more than either brings on their own. Their partnership creates a new reality. Marriage was intended by God as a way for two people to come together, to join together in a bond that was so strong, two actually become one. The husband and the wife complement each other. They make each other complete so that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Marriage is a union of two people, and we typically view this union in different ways. We may see marriage as primarily a physical or sexual union uh, designed to bring children into the world to provide an environment where they can thrive, or we may see marriage as a legal, a social union, something designed to produce a stable society. But from God's viewpoint, marriage is primarily a spiritual union. When two people come together in a biblical marriage, they form a channel through which God's spiritual life is channeled into ours. That's why some churches view marriage as an actual sacrament, similar to baptism or the Lord's Supper. A sacrament is a procedure through which God's divine grace his divine life is communicated to us. Now, baptism, for example. Baptism is more than just a symbolic act. Baptism is a mechanism that God uses to impart spiritual life to us. Not that baptism saves us, but baptism is a channel for God's grace into our lives. And God intends for marriage to serve a similar purpose. It's a process by which God fosters our spiritual life so that the husband and the wife mature and grow together in Christ. Now, I don't think we really understand the true value of marriage as a mechanism to shape our spiritual lives. Somehow, two people come together in a spiritual union, which the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, then joins to impart a spiritual life and a vitality that would not be possible through just one. Somehow, through the Spirit, the two become more than the sum of their parts. Now, I don't want to make it sound as if a single person can't mature spiritually. Of course, they can, and can even achieve spiritual greatness. For example, look at the Apostle Paul. God uses many ways to shape us and to achieve His purposes, and I believe there are some who are called to be single. But marriage is one of the ways in which God's grace is imparted in a unique and a special way. But look at how perverse and ornery we are in our fallen state. We take this awesome gift from God and we ruin it. We aren't satisfied with what God intends. We desire, we crave what is forbidden, and we end up destroying ourselves. Proverbs 6.32 says, But a man who commits adultery has no sense, Whoever does so destroys himself. 
The Old Testament took adultery very seriously. The penalty for adultery was death. Leviticus 20, verse 10, both the adulterer and the adulteress were to be put to death. We can also see from Genesis, in Genesis chapter 20, adultery is referred to as the great sin. And this is the story of how, how Abraham had gone to Gerar because of famine. And he told the ruler there, Abimelech, that Sarah was his sister because he thought they might kill him to take her as a wife. So when Abimelech finds out that Sarah is Abraham's sister, he does take her for a wife. And then God appears to Abimelech and tells him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now, Abimelech then calls Abraham and says, How could you do something so seriously wrong to me to allow me to take this wife, your wife, to allow me to commit adultery? Now, he did not actually follow through. It was stopped before the adultery had taken place. But we see what a serious matter this was. In fact, the Talmud calls adultery the sin par excellence. There are three sins, adultery, idolatry, and murder, which were considered so serious, people should avoid them even if it costs them their lives. As Proverbs tells us, the man who commits adultery destroys himself. Adultery not only does serious damage to marriages, to family, even to society as a whole, but adultery corrodes away a person's integrity. It warps his basic character. It degrades the ability to be faithful, uh, not just to be faithful to marriage, but faithful to anything. A man who can't be faithful to his wife, he will find himself betraying everything. It's interesting that uh, Ross Perot, who ran for president in the early 90s, he was a, a famous businessman who was known to have a policy of firing any of his executives when he found out that they would, were having an affair. And some in the news media questioned him about this and basically said, you know, this is a private matter. Why are you firing these people? And Ross Perot replied, if a man's own wife can't trust him, why should I? So why would we do this? Why would we take such an incredible gift as marriage is and deliberately trash it? Why would we deliberately bring destruction into our lives? To understand, we need to look at where the sin of adultery actually begins. In Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is getting to the very core of the matter. Now, the Pharisees were known for their strict observance of the law. These 613 commands given by Moses that make up the Torah. But the Pharisees also added oral law to this. This was the Mishnah. The Pharisees worked out in painstaking detail what it meant to follow the Mosaic law. The law commanded honor the Sabbath by doing no work. So what exactly did it mean to work? You know, I, I can't hoe my garden. That's work, obviously. But what if I'm just taking a walk and I spot a worm eating away at a plant? 
Could I pluck it off? Eventually, the Pharisees came up with 39 different definitions of work, and each had multiple subpoints. So, uh, in total, there were hundreds of rules about what is and what is not work. Now, as Jesus points out, some of the Pharisees were so legalistic out of hypocrisy, they were looking for loopholes. But there were other Pharisees, including the Apostle Paul, who were genuinely trying to do the right thing. They wanted to live the most righteous life possible. Paul, for example, writes in Philippians 3, verse 6, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. The focus of the Pharisees, what physical acts are allowed and what physical acts are forbidden? At what point have I sinned? Jesus throws all of this out the window and says, The sin of adultery is not in the physical act. In fact, adultery starts long before this with the motive and the intent of the heart. Uh, Adultery begins when you look at the woman uh, lustfully. The sin of adultery is not in the sex act itself. It's the breaking of the marriage vows, breaking the vows by indulging this lustful, adulterous spirit. So Jesus has put the problem into a nutshell. Our real problem is the adulterous spirit, the lustful, covetous spirit, uh, this desire for fulfillment or excitement or pleasure uh, through forbidden means, through something that is off limits. We're led into adultery when we aren't satisfied with what God provides for us. When we determine that we will satisfy our wants and our needs in other ways, even if these ways are forbidden to us. And this adulterous spirit cannot be taken lightly. Look at how serious Jesus takes this. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Now, we, we dismiss this a lot of times. We say, well, Jesus is using hyperbole. Jesus is exaggerating. And, of course, Jesus is not literally telling us to chop off our hand or pluck out our eye. But Jesus is not exaggerating about the seriousness of this condition. He is being deadly serious when he tells us what we need to do. Because this adulterous spirit doesn't lead just into adultery and other sexual sins, but the lustful, covetous nature is really the impulse behind all sins. God puts something off limits, but we are eaten up with the urge, the desire to have what is forbidden. Look at Eve in the garden. She knew the fruit was something that God had forbidden, yet she saw it as something to be desired. She wanted it. Paul writes in Romans 7, 8, But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Paul was describing something that's common to us all. In our sinful natures, when we are told something is forbidden, it immediately becomes attractive to us. And this spirit of coveting, of lust, It lures us into spiritual adultery and ends up destroying us. We end up breaking our relationship, our vows to God. For a believer to join in a forbidden union while in union with Christ 
is the same as for a husband or wife to join in a forbidden union while married. And just as adultery destroys marriages and families and individuals, spiritual adultery leads to the destruction of our souls. Now, we see the awful results of spiritual adultery in the life of King Solomon. Solomon had everything going for him. He inherited the kingdom of Israel when it was at the height of its power and its influence. In fact, Solomon had wealth and power that was not seen by any other Israelite king. And not only this, Solomon had been directly blessed by God with a a supernatural wisdom. God appeared to Solomon in a dream, and he promised him these things. Not only wisdom, but but God promises Solomon, I will give you wealth, possessions, and honor, such as no king who was before you ever had, and none after you will have. But Solomon's life ends up as a tragedy as a complete waste. Uh, In 1 Kings 11, verses 5 and 7, we read, He, Solomon, followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemos, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Now, Molech was worshipped by burning human children as sacrifices. After Solomon's death, Israel undergoes a civil war. They split into north and south, and they never reach any kind of prominence like they had under Solomon ever again. So how did Solomon end up in such a condition? We can trace his downfall back to this adulterous nature. Now, David had multiple wives. David had six wives in all. Solomon takes this to ridiculous extremes. Solomon has 700 wives. Now, that in itself destroys the whole idea of marriage as a spiritual union. It just isn't possible to form the relationship God intended marriage to be with 700 different women. And this isn't the end of it. Solomon takes an additional 300 concubines. These are women that he never marries, but he uses as a personal harem. Now, this was not adultery under the Old Testament law. Technically, Solomon had broken none of God's commandments about adultery. Multiple wives, even 700, were not prohibited, but clearly... Solomon made a complete mockery of God's plan for marriage, the idea of one man and one woman joining together in a spiritual union to become one person. And Solomon's indulgence of his lustful, his adulterous nature in regard to women, it leads him directly into spiritual idolatry. The lust degrades him to the point to where he cannot be faithful even to God. Solomon, The man God blesses with wisdom becomes a fool. He doesn't just flirt with idolatry. Solomon jumps in with both feet. He takes idol worship to such an extreme. He ends up being lumped together with two of Israel's most wicked kings, King Ahaz and King Manasseh. All three of these kings engaged in one of the most wicked forms of idol worship. They engaged in child sacrifice. They took living children and burned them alive 
as an offering to Molech. Now, this had been around before Solomon, but it was considered such an abomination by the Israelites. Anyone who did this was put to death. Solomon legitimized it. Because of his foreign wives, he makes child sacrifice acceptable. 1 Kings 11.5 He, Solomon, followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So, now can you see why Jesus takes this idea of lust so seriously? Why he is so deadly seriously serious when he says, you're better off chopping off your hand or plucking out your eye, if that's what it's going to take? Jesus is warning us, if you tolerate this spirit of lust and coveting in your life, you are going to pay a serious consequence. Now, God created us to have a unique spiritual union with Him. He is to be the one and only God in our lives. We are to look to God to find everything that we want and need. But when we are led astray by our adulterous hearts, we begin to look otherwhere, other places. As Trevor Bedoric puts it, we find our identity and purpose in the world, in our status, in our possessions, rather than in God. We become what James describes as friends of the world. So what do we do about this? If we recognize how deadly this spirit of lust and covetousness is, how do we get rid of these desires that overwhelm us? Traditionally, we have seen several ways of trying to do this. Some take the idea that the way to defeat these sinful desires is just not to fight them. The ancient Nicolaitans, they taught that the physical body is hopelessly corrupt and evil, and it's of no consequence to the spirit. So, if the desires and the appetites of this physical body are getting in the way of spiritual growth, spiritual life, go ahead, gorge yourself on whatever the body wants. Now, this will kill off your physical cravings, and then you're free to concentrate on spiritual matters. Now, this sounds kind of goofy to us, but this is not just an ancient heresy. The basic idea is still alive in the church today. Now, we don't state it this directly, but many in the church practice what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. The idea, we can do nothing to earn our salvation. No matter how good or how bad we are, we are saved through grace alone. And this is true. But people go on to say, it doesn't really matter then what happens with my physical body. Any of these sins will be covered by the blood. I'm free to live my life in the way I please, knowing I am saved by grace. Bonhoeffer writes, The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. In other words, grace can be had quite cheaply. There's nothing we, we can do uh, for it. Now, others will go in the opposite direction. They decide that the way to defeat sinful desires is to kill off all desires. As John Piper expresses it, they feel like the choice is to 
Either follow God's will and live with the frustration that your own desires will be forever unsatisfied, or follow your own will and be forever out of step with God. So they see only these two possibilities. This type of Christian isolates himself from anything that's pleasurable or enjoyable. They resign themselves to a life of discipline and duty. They set up a whole system of regulations designed to suppress desire. As Paul describes it in Colossians chapter 2, a life summed up by rules such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And Paul goes on to write in Colossians 2 verse 23, such regulations do have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This idea of killing off desire is actually more of a Buddhist notion than it is a Christian notion. C.S. Lewis points us to the truth when he writes, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Lewis goes on to, to compare us to children who are happy making mud pies in a ditch because we can't imagine what fun it would be to go to a beach and make sandcastles. We are far too easily pleased, as C.S. Lewis writes. The truth is, God wants us to live a fulfilled, satisfied life, a life that we enjoy. In fact, He wants to give you a life that you never dreamed possible. C.S. Lewis writes about the, the fact that the New Testament does talk a lot about self-denial, but self-denial is never intended to be an end in itself. We do take up our cross, but it's in order to follow Christ. And Scripture tells us if we do take up our cross, we are promised incredible rewards. It's not a life of scarcity, a life that's empty of pleasure, a life that's devoid of anything that we would want. We are promised a life of richness, so rich that we can scarcely imagine it. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come to give you life and to give you life to the full. So, when we look at these illicit desires that we have, the key to curing ourselves is to replace the illicit desires with a greater desire for God Himself. The greater desire drives out the lesser. So the cure for spiritual adultery, both for the Israelites and for us, is a new heart, a heart that desires God. The prophet Ezekiel, he ministered to the exiles when they were in Babylon. Now you remember, they had been cast out of the promised land because of their idolatry. And when Ezekiel prophesies to them, he does not mince words. He denounces all of the sins that they committed, all of these things that had caused them to go into captivity. But when he closes his book of prophecy, he closes with good news. God is promising to uh, restore the Israelites to do something very special and unique. He promises to take out their heart of stone and to give them a new heart, a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36 reads, 
I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. So the key to adultery is to, or the key to avoiding adultery is to increase your love for your wife, for your husband. If you'll fall completely in love with your spouse, it really cuts out the desire to cheat. The key to avoiding spiritual adultery is to delight ourselves in God. Psalm 37, 4. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Fall deeply in love with God, and all of these other lesser desires will be pushed out. They cannot coexist. So, is this something that just happens to us? Now, clearly, this is something God does. It's a work of God in our hearts. You know, God makes it possible for us to love Him at all. But is there anything that we do? Is there anything that we can do to help us fall in love with God? Romans chapter 1 tells us the, the driver of our covetous, adulterous nature is a lack of thankfulness. We aren't satisfied with what God provides. We want more. We want different. We focus on what we don't have. Romans 1 verses 21 and 22. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. So the key to killing off covetousness, this adulterous nature, is gratitude. Why? Why would gratitude be the key? Well, gratitude is what we feel when we believe that God is for us and not against us. When we truly believe that God gives only what is good and withholds no good things from us. You know, at its core, at the heart, covetousness is a state of unbelief. We have the idea that God is withholding from us. So, when we are grateful, our thanksgiving is the alternative to a life that's driven by cravings for what we don't have. So, how can we do this? What can we do to be content, to be grateful? There are practical steps to take. Frederick and Mary Ann Brussett offer us three very practical suggestions. First, they say, step one is, want what you have. In other words, be aware of all that you already possess. Don't take all of those things God has given you for granted. Look at what you have rather than what you don't have. Step two, don't make comparisons. This always gets us in trouble. We look at our neighbor and say, well, why do they have this and I don't? Why, why can't I have the same things they have? And then finally, step three, accept the lacks in your life. You know, we all lack things. We have things that are missing. We need to remember, God provides everything that we need. So anything that I don't have, it's not a mistake on God's part. It's a deliberate choice that God has made to withhold whatever that is from me. God, in His perfect wisdom, knows what is best. He knows this isn't good for me. 
So accept what is missing from your life. God, if you are a Christian, God doesn't intend for you to have that, at least not at this time. Be content. Learn that God is giving you everything that you possibly need. So, as we look at this lesson, we see adultery as one of the great evils that befalls human. And even worse than physical adultery is what lies behind it, spiritual adultery. Now, I, I hope very much that you're not committing physical adultery. And most people in the church probably are not. But you also need to be very careful that you're not committing spiritual adultery, that you're not looking to other sources, forbidden sources, for things that God should be providing to you. So as we go through this next week, I would urge you, look at your life carefully. Look at your life and see if you can detect this adulterous, covetous, uh, idolatrous nature. And if so, remember the warnings of Jesus. It'd be better for you to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand if it will remove this from your life. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the lesson that you've given us today and for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are everything that we need, that you provide everything that we need to live a rich and fulfilling life in you. For this we give you praise in your name. Amen.